Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the Napoleon Purtis. Regardless of whether or not you have a vested interest in beauty, Napoleon Purtis is one of the most recognisable names and faces in Australia. Between 1993 and 1995, Napoleon managed to co-found his namesake cosmetics company, open his first store, start selling his first beauty products and launch the Napoleon Purtis Academy, all while still working as a makeup artist. Today, Napoleon Purtis is a household name. I caught up with Napoleon himself at Napoleon Purtis headquarters in Sydney's Surrey Hills, for a conversation in which Napoleon got candid about what his Greek immigrant parents thought of their son working in beauty, how YouTube and digital in general has altered the way that makeup artists are being trained and educated, how the brand has thrived for so many years without having to sell to a multinational company, and the highs and lows of working with family. Now, I know that you and your wife and company co-founder, Sula Marie, both studied political science and business law, but we're going to get to that. Before that, growing up, did you have any ambitions to work in makeup? Um, Did I have any ambitions to work in makeup prior to my study? I don't think I ever really thought about it. I wanted to work in the beauty industry. I wanted to work in the hair industry. Um, I didn't know if there was something that I was going to do in my own with makeup and just only as a makeup artist till after university. And um, and I studied political science and business law, but she actually did actuary and finance. Ah, there you go. So what was your first real memory of beauty prior to getting into it? Look, my first real memory of beauty um, was my mother... A lot of the Greek immigrants of the 50s, you know, they didn't wear a lot of makeup. And she was always, when I, even when I look back at photos now, she was always made up. And not just a little bit. She used to love the makeup. She's Catherian, so they were never really occupied by the Ottomans. So they had a very different mentality. Um, so I used to just watch her go into the department stores. I used to watch her going at home, getting ready before events. And that was my first real experience with, with makeup and the adornment and the enhancement and the beauty and the glamour of it. Because, um, of course, it was also a period where women generally, even for like a little afternoon out, would dress up, mm-hmm. you know, and put in a dress. The idea of jeans wasn't as common as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very different sort of, you know, pe- period. And that kind of was very exciting. So... Um, and that's why my brother's our other partner because he also had that sort of experience with mum. It's just that I decided to output by becoming a makeup artist, and he um, output by just working in the and being a partner in the business. So while you and your wife were at university, am I right in saying you guys started doing bridal makeup yeah. on the side? Mm-hmm. So in the third year of university, we started doing bridal makeup on the side. We had a tutoring. Um, center where we would do tutoring she would teach mathematics Mm -hmm. um, because she was brilliant and came in the top two percent of the state in that and um, and I would teach um, history and English Mm -hmm. and 
So and make makeup was then what we do on the weekend with bridal, um, and Emmanuel would coordinate all the bookings mm-hmm. uh, for all that and keep everything on schedule. So that sort of was how we made our money in the third year of university. But we still sort of. Being of ethnic background, you know, we still felt like we needed to kind of work in the corporate world to sort of like see what it was about and keep it as a bit of a hobby. Mm-hmm. And it was after working in the corporate world that I realised that this could be just more than a hobby. Well, that was going to be my next question. At what point did you sort of all turn to each other and think, we can turn this from a bit of fun into a career? It was, um, we were all on a trip in Los Angeles. Um, I had won a competition um, to do a lookalike of Cher, who's one of my favourite artists, and the, yes. and I won the lookalike. Uh-huh. <laughs> she she looked amazing, the makeup that I did, and I won. Mm-hmm. And I part of it was to meet her makeup artist in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And we went over, and we decided it was around March, February, March '95, and we decided we were going to open up. Then we had we had we had a dis- did some distribution in makeup beforehand, but my which my brother sort of handled and I helped do the training. So that's where dad gave us a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, to be precise, it was 30000 which was a lot of money at that point in time. Yeah. Um, and we were then able to put our line together and Napoleon Purtis was born in August of ninety five. Amazing. Now, you said your father gave you that loan and you've also talked about... Um, you know, your background growing up in a Greek-Australian family and you're the son of immigrants. Were they very supportive of you starting a career in makeup, or were they, you know, a bit tentative? Look, I've lost my father recently and I've had to reconcile a number of things and to remember things correctly. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were supportive of me starting a career in makeup, but they did support me wanting to do my own thing. Yeah. So he wanted me to do the traditional you know, type of work that he was used to in terms of safety, you know, for being safe in the workforce mm. and, you know, having a career that he knew, whether it was like attorney or pharmacist or lawyer or, you know, like things Something that secure. accounting and things yeah. they knew, you know. Um, but obviously looking back now, and I have looked back at this earlier in my life as well, when I asked him for the money, he did ask me what I was going to use it for. And mm. I told him, so he obviously then gave it to me. So, on the one hand, he didn't want me to do that. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, he also didn't stop me from being who I wanted to be. So in hindsight, now that I'm older and a parent myself, yes. having to balance things, um, my father was very supportive, but he needed to balance his own insecurities. Mm-hmm. And in that came the what I thought was a lack of support. Right. But I think it was more about him being insecure that I wouldn't be able to you know, have a life yeah. and I wanted to get married early, mm-hmm. um, being this makeup artist and, but he gave me the money. So he obviously believed in me or he obviously took a chance. Um, and then when it did start working more and more, he sold his, he had a food shop, he sold yeah. his food shop and he came and worked in the warehouse Wow! for right till about three years before he passed away. Dad was working in the warehouse. That's amazing. Mm. So you were working as a makeup artist. So as a makeup artist, you would have tried basically everything that was available, every product, every brand. So what made you say, I need to start making my own products? Look, I 
I was working with different brands in a fishing um, in a fishing toolbox, um, which my wife bought for me. It was green on the top and black on the base, <laughs> and it opened up so it fitted everything. And then I had a makeup brush roll that was separate. Um, but there were a few things that I would need to get from overseas, mm-hmm. and the enormous success of Shulmura was starting to happen. You Iconic. know, he he for me. One of the, the two iconic sort of people is Helena Rubinstein in the yes. way that she's set up, you know, in the world when anyone would have least expected out of Melbourne, an immigrant out of Melbourne. Mm. And Shulmore in terms of the whole colour, you know, play yeah. my makeup artist market. You know, other people claim other brands, but they all copied Shulmore, you know, yeah. and I won't reference <laughs> who, but even some other really big brands have copied Shulmore. And if people do their digging, they'll figure out If they, people do their DD, that's right. And he was trained, you know, in an academy in Los Angeles, which I had some training in as well, which was very interesting. Um, he was trained much earlier, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would use those yellow-toned foundations, and they were extremely expensive. Shumura, even today, is extremely expensive. Absolutely. Um, and it really is a very elite line for makeup artists. And, um, and today, of course, there's so much choice, and people are using all sorts of stuff. But... True editorial artists don't use all sorts of stuff. They use yeah. things that are going to perform for them for all sorts of conditions. Because um, just to, because you've got an Insta account doesn't make you a makeup artist, you know? Like <laughs> We're going to talk about that a bit. Yeah. So, um, so I, I could then see that that was lacking. It was difficult for me to get out mm-hmm. of Australia regularly. Yeah. And it was on trips that I could and you'd kind of ask people to bring things over for you. And then there's things that, you know, I would use this whole you know, thing about oil at the moment that's really big, you know. I remember mixing lavender and olive oil, you know, back in the day to sort of prepare my bride's, you know, face and also cleanse all the makeup off before I did any cleansing. So some of the rituals that we've now also put into product, I was, you know, using with not just other people's products, but things that, you know, I wanted to make someone look beautiful with. Yeah. Um, So with that, I saw that Australia had a real lack you know, yeah. of, of that type of product line. And, and, and globally as well. I mean, there were some of the brands that were coming up. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's, it's like the world is so big, there's always capacity for more. Of course. We were the first in the market with the Luminizer Stick. Ah. We were the first in the market with Lip Lacquer. And yeah. I know because the other two brands bought them from the company and I helped develop them. The, the owner is Greek. Yeah. And of the, he's the, it's the third largest manufacturing, um, cosmetics manufacturing company in the world out of New York. And um, I helped with a chemist, and he's today he's the senior VP of product development. We did it, we did it back then, and I said I want to then take this in my line. Yeah. And he gave it to me, and he also sold the rights to these other two companies that were very big globally. Right. Um, one of them was bought by a multinational later, and um, so I had things that were firsts, equally mm-hmm. as much as putting a line that of color selections together, because um, with working with this manufacturer. He developed lines also for the African-American market and the Latino market. Right. So I could sit and cherry-pick the colour tones and develop them into my foundations. Yeah. And part of them were private label because I couldn't afford to make everything from scratch. Of course. But it wasn't available here anyway, and I had exclusivity to it. And part of it was custom. And then over the first five years, our goal was to customise everything. Mm -hmm. You know, from the cap to the formula to the packaging, to the absolutely everything. Because people think customising just the packaging. It's not. No. Like, you know, um, there's a lot of work that goes into the formula. When we were just doing a little bit of product development for next season up here and 
one of the marketing people said, "Oh, they smell like bubblegum." It was a deliberate thing, you know. They don't, uh-huh. no, they don't, some, they don't all smell like that. We did. There's things that we do now that is based on ingredients and smell and feel and texture and delivery, which you can customize. So we 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 did that over the first five years. So that's that's how Napoleon Purtis was born. It was born out of necessity. It was born out of a need in the market, mm-hmm. and it was born out of a a network that I you know maintained and I do to this day I don't I haven't burnt too many bridges the bridges that I've that have mm-hmm. been burnt around me have been three people that have worked for me and did wrong by me mm-hmm. um, that I believe they did wrong by me they may not think so but they did right wrong yeah. by me um, and you know you should never really mix money you know with no. and, and and ultimately um, employees can be loved but they're not necessarily you know your best friends yes you don't you know they have their world we have our world mm-hmm. um the second type of person that has you know burnt with me is someone that's been really envious i had people in the beginning and, and i still do that come up and go you know i should have done this and i had a bigger career and it's like well why didn't you <laughs> you know i remember specifically a major makeup artist at the time came into the first store we had and he made such a big deal about how he should have done it. And it's like, well, no, no one stopped you. And even today when people sort of say all sorts of things, yeah. you know, whether I'm loud or whether it's this or whether it's that, like, whether, you know, the way I dress or my sexuality, whatever, why don't you do it? Like, if it yeah. works for me and people are talking about me, good on me. So there's envy, you know. Yes. Um, and the third person that sort of is, you know, um, a person that may not gel is... The, the 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 female customer that has given up on herself that right. doesn't wear makeup and mm-hmm. and and if she does wears it only out of necessity and not because yeah. she loves herself mm-hmm. like when a woman loves herself it doesn't matter what age she is she can be 90 you know yeah. she could be on a deathbed she could be like I don't want to say what age she can start it because that depends on every every family they of choose course. with their daughters what they want to do but you know if she loves herself first, you know, she's always going to love makeup because it's a fun part. It's an oasis. So yeah. the women that, you know, and the cust- the woman that sort of, I don't know, considers herself to be only intellectual and doesn't do makeup and is like, <laughs> you know, and it's, they lose out to the women that are corporate makeover for, 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 for takeover. Yeah. So the, the, they're the three sort of, you know, um, elements that I've had, you know, people not do. Otherwise, from the beginning, it's been pretty much a great love story in Australia. Yeah. And 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 I've had to just balance different business issues, banking issues, employment issues, yes. you know, structural issues. All these things you can only really learn from doing. Yeah, like I've never done it before. Yeah, you know, I didn't have this sort of business before. I didn't. It wasn't a family business. Mm. Um, so I've learned along the way. So if I've made mistakes, even with employees, they've been genuine. I haven't yeah. gone out there to make them deliberately. No, you course. know, and I don't go out there and I and I don't think. And now it's of course a business that. There are certain things that people may feel they don't get listened to, but then they don't follow the correct channels to get listened to. Like yeah. I often say it's a two-way street. Like You need to go through the, the channel to communicate back. If that means through two managers, do it. Yeah. Take the time to do it. It shouldn't just be an instant that you can just get to someone. Mm. There needs to be a little bit of respect you know, with people's time. And also, you know, there's sometimes it's interesting that I see 18 and 19-year-olds think that they can automatically just come up and just ask me the most random question. I'm happy and open to answering but it's like 
That was something really your manager can answer you. And, yeah. and I don't need to be asked about your, you know, your vacation time or whatever. There's policy and procedures in place. And it's not because I'm shutting it down. It's just that I also do believe there needs to be some sort of etiquette. Yes, and you, if, if you come up and ask me and I don't do it for the other employee, then I'm also being seen to be favouring. Yes. So there's also the, the sort of politically correctness. So all those things are things that, you know, Napoleon put us had to balance, you know, and we're doing, we're doing it ourselves. We haven't sold. We're yes, not owned by anyone else. Which is else. a rare thing today. Every major brand today that is a household name in their country is now has been sold to one of the six multinational companies. What's that? L'Oreal, Estee, um, Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. Cody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Estee, L'Oreal. Yeah. Um, Clarence Group. Natura, ah. you know, so they're the large, you know, um, so you're an anomaly. you know, multinational companies that sort of buy the brands and, you know, create groups, the Unilever and create groups. Um, and we haven't, you know, yeah. and there's always pressure for that, you know, and there's pressure on meeting bank targets. And so, you know, I don't, I develop product for my customer, mm-hmm. but I do have to balance the commercial reality yeah. Which the pure makeup artist in me is always tormented and tortured, which I'm sure that happens without, you know, the purity of the makeup artist on the ground. Mm. You know, she or he is tortured by the fact that we're putting budgets around them. Yeah. But that's the way the world works. It's business. It's business. Mm. And, you know, it has to be where, as I say, if it's not in women's handbags, then we're not really doing our job. And then we can't keep going. Yeah. So it, it comes down to certain realities that you can't get around. But, you know, I was equally as romantic about some of those things at 19 as some of my 19 and 20-year-old employees are today. Yeah. You know, it's just that life over time teaches you that you've got to be more focused. I don't know if maybe the word is also shrewd or or, or, yeah, or, yeah. or poignant, you know, yeah. um, in what you have to do. So... Um, it's just the way it's just the way it's kind of it comes together and you know at the, I, I always said that I don't want to get to 50 and 55 and be swinging just a makeup brush yeah. you know I wanted more so I went for more you know I went for a business and I went for a structure and I went for stores and I went for this I mean the world's changed around us you know mm. with all e-commerce and social um, but it's been 20 nearly 25 years of an, an enormous a fantastic ride, a fantastic journey and ride and and connection to, to mm. the customer humans. Well, one of the other things you went for in business was the Makeup Academy. When was that? The Makeup Academy was first before the brand because it was in that period that I mentioned that we had a, a brand that I would do the training for. Yeah. Um, and that was from 93. Mm-hmm. Um, that was largely out of my home in Leichhardt. And then we moved to a premise in Broadway on Bay Street, which today has all been developed. I can't even believe the developments in the area. But it was like a really cute, you know, Bay Street Broadway, you know, just off... Um, um, sorry, we Smell Street Broadway and Bay Street was the cross street, which was ran into Glebe, was the bohemian fabulous you know part of town beautiful and napoleon purtis in you know that studio um was just phenomenal you know um and uh, the energy was just great and you know one of our first students was a hermaphrodite um so it was and another one was like a middle-aged um pharmacist consultant another one was like you know a young girl who wanted to do makeup and she'd bring her boyfriend as, as as her model um, and all sorts of different personalities. And um, 
And it was just, uh, and then you know, people that wanted to do bright or people that wanted to do editorial. It was a different world then, you know. Like it wasn't about just creating an Insta profile. It was you really had to build your book. You had to do the bridal, you had to do the testing, you had to do the testing on the face, you had to shoot, you had to create your book, you had to then, you know, get your first lot of editorials, you know, kind of go from there and mm. it was it was it was a real Warhol, you know, Andy Warhol sort of, you know, yes. factory machine, you know, yeah. in a way. I think that's the that's the sort of you know, I don't think another brand could be created today. They could be no. great and beautiful. And I think things can be created every day. Mm. You know, the, the human and the earth is like that. But the Napoleon Purtis energy in Australia, you know, has a very unique element to it that those yeah. elements are not recreatable easier, you know, easily. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people that can put glosses and even a makeup line together and all that. But that whole Andy Warhol factory era of our brand was amazing. It's a DNA that the brand has. And I think the way that people network and forge those connections now is so different because you can just, you know, comment on someone's mm. Instagram. But for you guys in the 90s, it had to be face-to-face. Everything face-to-face. And, uh, you know, that's why in my launch, you know, mm. I mean, after the Academy, you know, which is the first, as I said to you, the first part of which was this Warhol, Andy Warhol factory machine, um, we decided to the brand, and I told you how that sort of came about because we were obviously working a lot more as a makeup artist. But, you know, that's why at my launch it was like Varushka Darling and it was like, you know, <laughs> Lady Bump and it was like, you know, Maud Boat and who was the inspiration behind Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you know, mm. Maud Boat. I mean... Um, and you know um, Kirk Pengali and Denny Hines and In Excess and Australian Women's Forum Men of the Year and those magazines didn't exist anymore but geez it was huge and Tony Perrin she just had her movie Mm. out All Men Are Liars and I mean it was Marcus Graham I was actually up in Brisbane last week and one of the models for the Brisbane opening which was with Marcus Graham and Mimi McPherson you know she was like she's now a radio presenter up there and you know she was so excited we were meeting so many years later and all that stuff today you do invites and you're hoping this influence will turn up but these were real big household names so doyens that would write for the papers back then melissa hoyer and yes. those who still are doyen today in many ways yes. you know she she dubbed it the home away from home for sydney's beautiful people in one night oh my. you know we had a big runway at the front of oxford street there in paddington which is where the store was um, we just, my mum, you know, cooked a lot of the food for the catering. We oh, had alcohol. That. We ran out of alcohol. We're running to the pub across the road where Verona is now. There was a pub, which I think there still might be. And we were running to try and get out. We ran out. And with, you know how people give time slots now for functions? Well, it was spilling over all night. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and Sydney was different. It was, a, it was a diverse Sydney. It was a different. We talk about diversity today, but in some ways they've also controlled what you can do because you've got to get permits and this and that. Like diversity should be at every level, you know, about how you interact with your environment, your of city. Course. Now they've controlled everything, the parking. You know, like, like Everything's almost so controllable. So yeah. they're only ever talking about sexual diversity, but they've given up on so much other diversity, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so... That, that kind of was a really funky, fun, cool, you know, period where any, and anything went. It wasn't about brands. I remember what I wore that night was like leather pants and these Fred Munster shoes and a silver shirt. Love it. There were no, it wasn't <laughs> branded. It was just from, you know, shops around the area. So, Amazing. So then evolving a brand from that sort of DNA of Academy and that sort of energy, mm. you know, has, has roots and has heritage. And, and there are people that have been with us long enough that, you know, saw the the, the the brand develop because the early days was us. You know, yeah. then you bring people in. There are people that are now still part of the brand from that sort of period of the the brand then starting to become a brand more than just this sort of energy. I mean, that speaks volumes about the company. So at this point, it's the mid-90s. 
you have a brand, you have the academy, you're still a working makeup artist, you've got stores. How were you physically managing a business of that scope so early on? My wife and my brother were managing different areas. So dad Mm -hmm. would be in the warehouse and he bought um, two of his staff from the shop to work. So we knew them. We knew them forever. And in fact, one of them about a couple of years ago was one of our longest serving employees. She retired. Yeah. uh, Was our longest serving employees, Doreen. Um, And then her daughter worked in there as well. Um, And... um, uh, so that was the warehouse side, which was really the back of the store at first, and then it was this sort of facility in Chippendale. Um, and Sulamri would look after sort of the accounts payable, accounts receivable, um, you know, the finance side of things. Um, the registers, they weren't like FPOS came later, you know. Right. Um, the registers, all that. And then um, I would look after the training and the new um, development of product and the working artistry to kind of make sure the, the brand had you know, depth of, you know, of heritage. Mm. Um, and then EP, Emmanuel, my brother, you know, ran the sales side and, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, 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 the, and the, the, per, the person side. It was, I think in some ways he got really the, the hard end of the, the stick because I don't think he ever gets as recognised, you know, because he was the one that had to make the, the hard calls when the right. personnel weren't doing their job. In a, you know, I was the personality, so it was always, he was the one that had to kind of, and, um, I think when we went to America, he probably missed the fact that we were a trio, that we kind of were all there. So even mm. though he, he took a lot of the burden in even more ways, and it's it's kind of one of the reasons why America wrapped up because um, it was really important for us to focus on our home market. Yeah. And things were changing here as well, and we hadn't we'd invested so much in expansion that we hadn't invested in what we needed to do here. Mm-hmm. So um, so Emmanuel was really our third integral partner, you know, from day one, you know, mm-hmm. um, right there in belief in me from day one and and belief in what we did from day one. So family obviously is at the core of the business and your daughter plays a role now, which we will talk about. Mm. What I would love to know is how do you strike that sort of perfect balance between your personal life and running the business when the two are so inextricably linked? So the question is how do you strike that perfect balance Mm. between life and work and business and everything and, and, and relationships and family? You don't. <laughs> it's not balanced. Yeah. And it's a pendulum swing. Right. You know, there are times you need to give work, you know, an enormous amount and actually does suffer. Mm-hmm. The relationships do suffer. Um, but hopefully the relationships have enough, enough sort of roots and grounding that they can rebuild. But there yeah. are tough times you know, over the years, you know, in, there's no doubt about it like um and uh, i think anyone who says that long-term business or life partner relationships don't have tough times are liars yeah and i'll just say that outright (laughs) and you know people can then say whatever they want and you know and good luck to people that can actually say that this is perfect because i probably the way the world is there probably is a very small percentage of people that can actually totally balance it but Mm. that's with enormous discipline you know we're 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 greek australians we have passion you know, disciplines don't come in an Anglo way. They don't come in a Greek way. They come in this kind of synergized, fused mm-hmm. way. So um, those passions obviously have ups and downs and there's no balance. But I think also in you know in any partnership, be it business or otherwise, if there's no conflict, there's probably someone's not voicing their opinion. So I feel like that's important to any brand. You've got to be able to put your ideas out there 
regardless of how everyone else is going to take it. Correct. Now, speaking of family, your daughter Liana has now taken on a role as basically the face of the brand. Did you always envisage that she would play a role within the company? Look, I think to clarify, Liana is one of the faces of the brand. Yeah. Of the brand, I should say. Um, she plays a role because there's there's some degree of authenticity, you know. Yeah. Um, we worked the you know with her energy, her career to have a modelling base. Yeah. Um, with her first girlfriend covers and her first rush editorial, mm. and it's been built from there. Um, whether the whether the whether it was built through connection or whether it was built through relationship, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day. The covers had to sell. Yes. And, you know, and all her covers sold and we had great results on every single one of them. Mm. So, therefore, there was the next level. So, um, it's her that made, you know, it. I, just like last week at MBFF, Mercedes-Benz, you know, Fashion Festival, we, I couldn't walk. She, people had to like her and there were people complimenting <laughs> you me. You could give it a go. Yeah, yeah, I could. <laughs> but, I mean, people were complimenting me. So, she's one. We still have our models that we have a pool of that we use in our, mm. in our campaigns and our... And our social media. We now have, you know, diverse influencers. If you go through my grid, you'll see yes. we've had a number of diverse influencers. And actually quite controversial as well mm-hmm. compared to most brands that are just sort of owned by multinationals that are a little bit more, I don't know, cleaner or or their voice is not as loud. Um, we also have my voice, um, yes. the makeup artist's voice. We also have um, Sulamri Purtis's voice, the voice of the woman plus 45 yeah. and muse of the brand from the beginning. Um and we also have the business voice. It's the business itself has a voice, you mm-hmm. know, with uh, uh, policy and procedure and, and customer communication, interaction and, and all those things. So Liana is one of the voices. And then, of course, there's the triplets, um, which have their own voice and setting up their own YouTube. Yeah. And, and we're really wanting to make sure that that funnel is, you know, created in a way that suits them and they, they do that as well. So... Liana's been successful with Napoleon Purtis to date as far as media pool yeah. um, and media presence, which um, has been great. Her results in terms of sales have been her appearances. When we appear together, we have really great results. Right. But we, it's not the days where you have, like, you run an ad campaign and you can measure sales results. We We just wanted Liana to be an authentic voice of the brand. We think that Napoleon Purtis, and I believe that Napoleon Purtis needs to keep having authentic voices. And so she's continuing and part of the continuing cycle of the authentic voice. Um, With campaigns that she runs, you know, um, they're good because people know that they're authentic. Yeah. You know, when she's with another model, they're good because... It, she's in the company of what she does as well. Yeah. Um, but she's very aware that, she, you know, she's carving her own career, which is in another field altogether. Um, and we'll see how that works out for her as well. But in the meantime, you know, I like having her assistance. And uh, I don't think there's a parent in the world that doesn't like having their assistant in anything that their yeah. children could do, you know. So um, I have been tough at times with, you know, making sure that she does certain things you know with 16 I've never been a father of a 16 or an 18 year old now she's 18 but she started at 16 um, before so and uh, and then at times I've had to be softer and other times I've had to kind of compromise which I doesn't come easy to me (laughs) (laughs) no I understand that I'm much the same so you said Liana's 18 now so I feel like she really is smack bang in the middle of that 
social media age. So do you use her to keep the brand fresh and relevant for that age group? How have you gone about keeping the brand relevant? We use... We, the brand has definitely Liana presence, mm-hmm. uh, influencer presence. Yes. And um, creative energy. Like a lot mm. of the... A lot of the new social posts, if you like, on the grid or the algorithm or whatever, are, you know, created out of my horticulture love, you know, and my Ah. collection love. So if you see some of the new lip and some of the new, Mm. you know, cream sort of videos, um, as in some of our new skincare, um, it comes out of, there's a mid-century feel to some of it. Yeah. There's a horticulture feel to some of it. And there's a freedom of like muted beach and you know childhood renaissance to some of it so Mm -hmm. liana is one of those elements yeah um and she has a voice like i like her strong you know opinion around the grid Mm -hmm. um my my grid's been running for nearly 10 years now so there's probably about 120,000 of inactives you know in some ways if i could clean it it actually makes the grid even more powerful um because you have a whole heap of people that have been with you for years that don't unfollow, you know, because a lot of my generation don't unfollow. And the young ones follow and unfollow all the time. <laughs> but because, remember that even Instagram now is coming up mm. to its eighth, ninth year. So, um, you know, that pool you know, is, is one that, you know, we're always looking to see how to activate further and further. And we're getting more pure with it. You know, at times we would boost, at other times mm-hmm. we wouldn't, you know. But we're getting more and more pure in just keeping it to the activation level because ultimately if you look at the true um, audience that participates with activation it's actually really high but if you look at total numbers because we've been around in Instagram for that many number of years um, it looks like oh they they should really have a stronger participation but I didn't build the Instagram the last three or four or five years. It's actually been built for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, beforehand. And it's, when I go down, I cringe at some of the stuff that's on there. <laughs> so um, it's actually interesting. I think one of the big ways that social media and Instagram in particular has changed the beauty industry is how quickly a trend can go viral and then how quickly that trend can then drop off the radar. So what's your personal philosophy on fast trends? I don't believe in fast trends. Yeah. Um, I know that. They work for some brands and some people. I think it's limited. Yeah. I think um, legacy brands that are legacy heritage plus more um, probably try and just bring product out that just allows someone to be beautiful Mm -hmm. and allows someone to deliver it on their face or body as they want to Mm -hmm. and they have choice. I think... Just to follow a trend is dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I think that you're right. It can drop off within a 24-hour period. So how do you even keep up yeah. with that? And then if it's seen later, it's seen... It's a bit naff. So there are certain things that, you know, come, like highlighting and contouring. I mean, have a look at some of my original work. It's like so highlighting and contouring, it's not funny, right? From like 25 <laughs> years ago. But... I don't think it's actually for every single face. Mm. Like if I was to do my mum's makeup, who's um, 76, um, and she still wears makeup and she's mm-hmm. actually still, you know, keeps well. I mean, some people think of her as, as less than 70. Um, I'm not going to highlight and contour her. No. It doesn't work. <laughs> like <laughs> she, she just needs freshness, you know, and you don't mm. do that by doing all that, all those 
cuts and highlights. And then when I'm working on, you know, a young girl, you don't need to actually do all of that. You know, yes, on Liana, we added some highlight and contouring on some of the shows and others we didn't. She always still looks like herself, though. I've never seen, you know, imagery of her where it looks like, you know, when the makeup's so heavy that it no. changes the shape of someone's face. No, and if you go through her grid, you can see where she's just shot herself basically with just mm. a little bit of concealer and that's it. Yeah. And then there's times where she has highlighted and contour because she likes it. I mean, it's not yeah. like we don't ever do it. It's But fun. I just don't think that it's... You know, there are people now mm. that religiously go out with that routine. Right. And I, I, I went out to dinner last time I was in Sydney at a fabulous restaurant called Machiavelli in Rushcutters Bay and Paula's, Paula's the chef there. And um, I just sat and I looked at some of that crowd mm. and I just couldn't believe, you know, some of these young girls that came in with these chocolate bars that in the evening actually show up even more because the dark... Makes Oof. them look darker. Yeah. And I've just been noticing that for the last few years and I just don't get it. Like, I understand mm. contouring. I mean, please, which makeup artist doesn't who's, that has worked professionally and with lighting and mm. behind... But I just think it's far too much, you know, like... Yeah. And uh, I think it just goes far too much. And one of the tips I gave to Ali today about, you know, about women, it was a tip in relation to women over 50, but I believe it, is that one of my ideals would be to get to almost zero foundation in the forehead. Because mm-hmm. I said, do mascara brows first, do concealer. Yeah. You know, and you can use concealer to sort of, you know, because you can do the dusting of powder to keep it together or, or use very little foundation, just blend to nothing. But an almost zero feel to foundation in the forehead and foundation in the neck is perfect. Because mm-hmm. an almost zero feel would just be that it's all working with you. Yeah. You know, and they're not, they're going all the way down to here. And they're contouring and they're doing all this and they're, you know, and it's just all a bit too much. Like even on the runway with Liana, I just said to the girls and um, and my twins assisted in some of the shows, just put moisture. Like she's got great legs and by yeah. just moisturising it, you don't need to over make it all up. And these days they're doing all that makeup, which, you know, some of the reality TV stars may do, but they they have someone there touching them up 24-7. Yeah. So you just put moisture. It looked great on the runway because the mo- when the moisture's fresh, it will just show up. So... It was fine. So I don't really understand why people then take the foundation all the way in here and here and, and all mm. that, you know, and they complement it with the tanning. I don't mind a fake tan, but um, I don't like it when it's all then blended with all that foundation. Yeah. Just it, fresh and beautiful is still much more. So it's I don't timeless. really. It's timeless. So I don't really believe in those, in following those trends to that level. Yeah. And then I don't believe in lying to the audiences by creating these optical illusions to get followers. Mm. You can be controversial with your voice without doing all these optical, like, dots and, like, tribal and then yeah. beating with an egg instead of a makeup sponge. Like, I mean, hello. I mean, I don't even get why that's cool. No, it's, you I know? will never understand that. But they do it and they do yeah. it followers. Like, so, I've been controversial. One of my most controversial in the last few months has been a guy that's got lip lip gloss almost between his legs. and. I don't understand why it was so... It's actually artistic. like, yeah. And it was meant to be artistic, but obviously there's about 800 comments, I think, on there if you have a look. Well, and it feels very Warhol, which is sort of what you were talking about Yeah, before. but so many people can't don't even... You know, some, some people don't even know how to reference proper art. Yeah. That they get confronted. But then when they go and they see it somewhere in, like, I don't know, some latest Paris fashion show, because this latest new designer's put it on there, it's like, it's now all of a sudden trendy. Well, yeah. It's not. Like, it's been done before, <laughs> you know, and it's been done... You know, like, I, I like one of my favourite artists, Vermeer, and he was, you know, he was so um, middle ages, and, 
and he's still so relevant you know mm. as an artist so and he played on light in his art so when they go on about things i'm like it's already been done yeah. <laughs> like i don't know why it's so controversial it's not controversial at all well, I think trends aside, the other big way that digital has changed beauty is how accessible things are now. And with YouTube, there are so many tutorials and I feel there are more and more girls, particularly that are sort of just leaving school, are turning to that YouTube culture and becoming self-taught. Now, education is obviously a massive part of your brand and that's at the centre of it. What are your thoughts on this YouTube culture? Oh. Uh... It's not really for me to judge. I think it's here to stay. Yeah. I think that we are adopting our academies around it. In fact, we're minimising um, the number of academies and the academy enrolments mm-hmm. because so many young girls think that they are now makeup artists. Yep. Because of the, they watched something on YouTube. Because they have a brush roll. Because they, they have a brush yeah. roll and they watched it on YouTube and you know they watched ten different ones on YouTube and. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet they haven't done the number of faces that are true. That's why I said doing the yeah. you had to do face up on face up on face up on face, and you go to agents and ask them. You could test with models, and they're not even doing that anymore. You know, yeah, like everyone's a model. You know, so um, it's not going to change. It's not for me to comment. It's difficult for someone to comment when it's here to stay. Um, YouTube is a phenomenon that is here to stay. Mm-hmm. I think that it's part of this whole rise of you know, the individualization of television culture to keep you, you know, almost within a jail cell of visual Mm -hmm. so that you don't actually physically have to think about some of the realities of life. Yeah. Um, I try and encourage my friends and my loved ones and my children to just get out and feel life. It's actually, life's really beautiful. It is. Um, Even with challenges. Um, So... um, you know, it's going to be here at Stain. It's, it's made us change our business model. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's, it's, it was important for us to narrow down and have less enrolments because there were less coming. So, therefore, you know, there were less watching. Yeah. Um, whether we kind of amp so much on YouTube or not, I don't really know. You know, mm-hmm. we're still, we'll, we'll, wait to, we'll wait and see. Yeah. It's like every television network, whether it was in the 50s and 60s when it first came out or whether it is today. If you've got something that's going to be a hit, it'll be a hit anyway. You yeah. know, whether you do it 10 years later or five years early. Um, that's all I can say about YouTube. Yeah. Now, my numbers might be wrong here, but I think we're looking at something to the tune of 85 stores, 100 department store counters, and about 750 independent stockists. With the brand being that big and, you know, your name being so iconic, how do you go about keeping... A level of consistency across all of the stores the way the staff are trained how do you sort of work that brand message so those numbers that's a very good question those numbers are not totally correct but let's just call it for the ballpark that they are right yeah. um, we're actually reducing footprints in each of those areas okay um, specifically for that reason mm-hmm. you can't create consistency so let's just take the department store model for one. You know, if the department store staff are not, if they're not hiring staff, and I'm not a concession, I'm not a store within store, right? I'm yeah. just a counter. And that staff is 50-50. They're hired by one of the department stores and we subsidise the salary so we can have them there. Yeah. If they're not hiring staff and we get complaints about customers saying, I wanted to have my makeup done, I couldn't get it done, Napoleon Purtis and this whole... The customer doesn't understand that it's actually not Napoleon Purtis. Right. Right? So 
we're going through a period of totally consistently reducing that footprint Mm -hmm. to have a much more consistent approach. It's why Priceline is so important because Priceline is at least real. It is open sell. Mm -hmm. There's no expectation of a makeover. Yeah. You know, and there's an expectation of just cherry picking buffet style of beautiful product that's been, you know, that's got heritage. And so that's why it's important to us. But the rest of the distribution is being consolidated. It will probably be a third to two-thirds of those numbers in the next couple of years. Right. Less. Now, you've just mentioned Priceline and your products are available there as of very recently. Mm. You have created some truly iconic products. The first one that comes to mind for me is Autopilot, which I think was my first Mm. product from the brand and that's existed for as long as I have known of Napoleon Purtis. How does that process go for you developing a a product? How long does it take from conceptualising it until it lands on the shelves? Some things can take nine months. Mm -hmm. On average, it takes around 18 months. Mm -hmm. But if we talk about conceptual, on my desk there, I have three folders. I'm not going to show because it's... (laughs) That are conceptual folders from about three years ago. Ah. One of them I've called in from a manufacturer who's done some custom work for me, some initial look and feel. Mm-hmm. It probably won't be out for another couple of years. Ah. So if we're talking about for conceptual, it can take three, five, six years. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about product that will then, you know, from the moment it's decided upon, yeah. comes to market, it's somewhere between nine and 18 months. Goodness. So how do you, I mean, if you've had stuff sort of in your head for three, however many years, how does the thought process work where, you know, will this sell three years down the track? How do you well, gauge only if something br- will be relevant? Yeah, good, good point. How does it sell down the track? You only bring it out when it's ready and it's at that time. Right. You know, so there's, um, there's a story that's, you know, that's, that's come out now, which is all the serums and masks and cleansers all have a symbol. And that symbol is part of you, if you want to, building your own constellation. Well, when I first thought about it, I was probably more astrological about it. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm not. Right. Today, I wanted the symbols to be on each of those products. Yeah. And if a woman wants to understand more, she can go into understanding her constellation Mm -hmm. and she can build it. But if she doesn't, she doesn't have to. She just has to like what she sees and it's there. But but for me, there's an authenticity to bringing out skincare within the constellation Mm -hmm. and spiritual realm that if someone's into that, they'll get it. If they're not, that's fine. They'll just love the ingredient deck. Others will just like the fact that it performs and others will just like because they just need it at that point in time. So... The concept will come out in a format yeah. when it does that it is ready for at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think while we're talking about you know products that are being conceptualised, that might be a nice way to end it. So my last question is, what's next for Napoleon Purtis? You know, what's next for Napoleon Purtis is consolidation mm-hmm. uh, to create consistency um, in Australia. Mm-hmm but international expansion and also working with um, our product development team, our makeup artists, Liana and the girls to develop what is 
the meaning of natural and organic at Napoleon Curtis. That was Napoleon Curtis, who you can find on Instagram at Napoleon Curtis or online at napoleonpurtis.com. To read my interview with Napoleon, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us and join the Glow Journal family. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.